1: Welcome to episode 513 with my guest Melinda Hill. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. If if uh, we were doing community theater, the introduction to this show would be, oh, hello, welcome to the darkness, but there's also light. And then a local band would play some copyright-free piece of music off-key let's dive into some loves this was filled out by renee and uh, they write i love reading and usually reading voraciously since the start of the quarantine in early march i live in vienna austria i couldn't concentrate on anything fiction or non-fiction but now finally the love comes back i love my friends because i took them for granted before and thought i was so self-reliant well i'm not i'm glad i can see them again i love nature Luckily, I live close to the woods, and I love walking in them for hours. It's also one of the few things that calms my anxiety disorder. Now, thank you for that. Uh, Vienna is one of the places on my bucket list. I have just always found something that just clicks with me in Germanic countries. Uh, would you lump Austria? would Austria be considered a Germanic country? I don't know. Uh, when I visited Switzerland, I loved it. When I visited Germany, I loved it. And there's something about Vienna that, uh, I don't know, it just piques my interest. So what I'm saying is, can I stay with you? This is a struggle on a sentence survey filled out by uh, Broken Bird. And they write about their depression. I want to bury myself in a pile of blankets in a dark closet and sleep forever. Oh my God. God, do I get that one. Oh, my God. That that is Hall of Fame accurate. This is an email I got, uh, and they write, Hi, it's been a while since we last spoke. We didn't receive a reply from you last time we reached out. Your Instagram was reviewed by our team. You were chosen to represent us for 2020. Looking forward to hearing from you. Oh, looking forward to hear from you. Our IG is official, and you will receive free items today. And then in all caps, send us a personal message on Instagram and don't reply to this email. I have to assume the all caps means that this was sent by the president, and he is looking to put together a team of people who like to grind but are considered amateurs. And uh, sadly, I am not considered an amateur. I hold the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest dry hump. It was set in the 70s, and I went through about 200 stuffed animals. And the next day, I actually also won a Guinness Book of World Records uh, for the most gingerly walk. That That was a week of just pure celebration. And by celebration, I mean uh, people avoiding me. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, I am a big fan of online therapy. I was a fan before the pandemic and the quarantine. Uh, BetterHelp, that's spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P, uh, is, a, is a great way to uh, check out online therapy. They have a ton of counselors. They are... Um, meet all legal requirements in all 50 states, um just go to betterhelp.com slash mental and fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they will pair you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's a good fit for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, if you're between 13 and 17, they will direct you to teencounseling.com and then you can fill out the paperwork and parental consent and uh, they'll get you get you rolling on that. But once, once you do Uh, fill out the parental consent and all that for teen counseling, then the relationship between the therapist and the client is uh, 100% private. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. My buddy Jordan Harbinger has a podcast called the Jordan Harbinger Show, uh, and he was one of my favorite guests. I'm I'm chatting with him right now, and I wanted to give a shout out to your your podcast. You do such a great job with it. You have uh, some really amazing guests, some great topics, and you had an episode with a guy named Mark Edward. Am I getting that uh, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Mark Edward is a magician, right? He's a skeptic and he also does these fake seances and things like that at the Magic Castle. And to pay the bills back in the day, he worked at the Psychic Friends Network, which is, you know, this ridiculous kind of fake psychic phone line thing. And on episode four thirteen of the Jordan Harbinger show, he talks about why not not, not only are all psychics fake, but what's actually going on in the mind of both the psychics that think that they're actually psychic and are of course are not and in the con artist versions that are just pulling the wool over people's eyes. He also shows all these different techniques that fake psychics use, or psychics in general, because they're all fake, use to read people, right? The body language they're looking at, the things on your body that they're looking at, these little clues, how they get the clues. And then, of course, I had him do a reading on me, which was kind of scarily accurate. And then he explained exactly how he got all of those different factors right using things that are publicly available. So it's kind of this very interesting art of deception. And some people use it to make a living. And that was episode 413 of the Jordan Harbinger show. Really interesting tale.
1: So could I use that if I want to take over the world?
0: Yeah, you'd have to be pretty good at it, though. I think you'd have to be pretty good at it It doesn't hold up to scientific scrutiny, right? If you have like a controlled environment, Mm -hmm. then I think it falls apart
1: pretty quick. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. The Jordan Harbinger show. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by Eric. And he writes about his depression. Actually, he writes about his anxiety. Uh, Why do people have to look at me? About his alcoholism. The beer I just drank really wants company. About his love addiction. I just need to find the perfect girl that makes me a real person. About his sex addiction. Shove porn and sex into the black hole in my heart about his codependency. Tell me who I am supposed to be and tell me I am good every hour. Snapshot from his life. My heart felt so full when I had a new girlfriend, I stopped taking antidepressants because I forgot I was sick. Uh, and about his depression i would rather be dead than think about what i need to do next week oh my god did i relate to that one not not so much wanting to be dead but just anxiety about the future It it's i i could have a day where i only have three errands to run and it seems like mount everest so thank you for that i'm very very much related to that And this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by an agender person who re- refers to themselves as, I'm just fucking exhausted. And about their ADD, they write, uh, One of my coworkers uh, who has known me for 30 years told me, You squirrel more than I do. I like that verb, squirrel, about their anxiety. When I stop worrying for a minute, I start worrying about why I stopped. About their autism, uh, high-functioning autism. I don't know whether it's worse that people keep referring to me as some variation of a robot or I wish it were true because then I wouldn't feel so stupid about my social ineptitude. And about their imposter syndrome, helicopter pilot, EMT, master's degree, triathlete, self-taught CBT and ERP, fencer, aviation maintenance manager, Air Traffic Control Manager, Baker, Polyglot, Amateur Astronomer, Lifeguard, Tutor, Mentor, Victim Advocate, Fraud. Every little
0: thing feels like the end of the world.
2: that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry
0: we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watch the breath leave their bodies maybe well, listen thanks for coming in
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm here with uh, melinda hill who is an actress uh screenwriter, performer, podcaster. Uh let's give a shout out to your new stand-up special Inappropriate. I watched a, a a clip from it and I I love that you you delve into shit that a lot of people would go um, that, that's not funny territory. Let's <laughs> let's not go into that. And I mean it's, you know, your special's called Inappropriate, but that's one of the things I like is when people get out there on the thin ice and uh and and find the humor in stuff that a lot of people wouldn't find humor in.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. I appreciate that.
1: Um, I just did Melinda's podcast, which is called Let's Process This. This or that?
2: Let's Process This with Melinda Hill.
1: Yeah. Um, we had a nice conversation. I enjoyed talking to you. You're a very, very easy person to talk to. I was reading your bio, and it said that you moved as a kid. 27 times with with your father who had bipolar. Was mom not in the picture?
2: Mom was in the picture, too. She was? Yeah.
1: Okay, but dad was kind of leading the charge?
2: Yeah. Yeah, he was never happier than when he was moving. Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: It's interesting (laughs) because they say the three most stressful things on people are um, a death, death of a loved one, divorce and moving.
2: Yeah, and it's kind of like moving kind of is all three of those things cuz you're divorcing the place you've been.
1: That makes sense.
2: And there's a death in your friendships unless you can
1: Yeah, I never keep thought about going. that. And I'm-
2: then the other big fear that people have is public speaking, and ironically I went right into that line of work as a what comedian. Do you, what do
1: you what do you think that's about being seen?
2: Probably. Um, and you know, I always think back like to always being in- introduced to as the new girl in the class mm-hmm. and just how terrifying that was for me as a shy person to be introduced to yet another class of people just feeling like I'm being stared at and judged and not knowing how to fit in. And I just think of actually what a great training ground that was for stand up. <laughs> yeah. Right?
1: It <laughs> makes total sense. Uh how, how do you think you adapted and your personality maybe was was molded to cope with all of that moving?
2: Uh, how did I adapt to it? Yeah. I think
1: Or did you not?
2: Mostly I kind of blocked it out. I don't remember most of it. I do remember – I have large chunks of memory just gone, and people will write me now on Facebook and say, oh, and we were best friends in sixth grade and stuff like that, and I have no recollection who they are. Um, But I do remember like in the early moves, like around kindergarten, when we would move, I would – at night, I would try to imprint – everyone's names into my mind so I would never forget them and I would promise them I'm never going to forget you and then after we moved I would still talk to them in my mind really and try to imprint them and I I think that may have been the beginnings of some compulsive (laughs) you know um attention to detail um not being able to forget things
1: you uh wrote in your bio that uh, you have a rich fantasy life which would make sense for for somebody who's trying to i don't know not be present for the the pain they're they're going through talk talk about that talk about fantasy and when it began and what some of the things you would escape into
2: yeah um i would definitely um start fantasizing about clothes. I would fantasize about my clothes for the year. I would go through every detail. I would make build little outfits in my head. I would make up family trees, fictional family trees for fun. I would just come up with all these names. I would write little plays for my brother and the family pet to star in. I would always play like the wackadoo, and have my brother be the straight man, and um, do these little two-person plays. And I was just always deeply somewhere else, like imagining um, scenarios, scenes, plays, outfits. I would imagine having a boyfriend and all the date, you know, dates we would go on, and all the little clothes I would be wearing.
1: Are there moments when you couldn't block it out that you remember that that were really difficult?
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely like in high school, like leaving in 11th grade, um, junior year high school, having to leave my boyfriend and my best friend. And we'd been at that location for quite some time. So I, that was like the longest stretch. We'd really been anywhere. So I'd had I'd spent a few years there. I had a boyfriend, I had a best friend. I, it was a cool scene. It was in Colorado Springs and there were like artists and weirdos and you know, creative people and I was getting attention for my creative writing and acting in plays and suddenly we had to move to a little town, in Kansas. And my brothers were very popular in Colorado as skateboarders. They built their own half pipes and they they had this whole scene in our backyard and all to like 30 skaters
1: at all times
2: in our backyard. So it was a very happening kind of thing happening. And then we had to move to this little town in Kansas, 2,000 people, brick streets. And it was like going back in time to the 50s. Like it's the town where my parents met and they everyone was a football player or cheerleader and every like it seemed like every day was school spirit day <laughs> and I was just like that was so hard to it was it was so depressing that some days I would start to walk to the school and I would just go, I can't do it. And I would just go back home and go to bed. And my mom would just be like, all right. <laughs> she understood.
1: What were the reasons for the, the moving?
2: Uh, my dad typically had some kind of reason. Some were legit job transfers. Some were he quit a job or he was let go. And um, I mean – it. They were all different reasons.
1: Uh, Talk about your dad having bipolar. Do you know if it is one or two?
2: I don't know. That's a good question. And it's hard to ascertain any real information because I I don't know that he's ever gotten um, an accurate diagnosis. And I don't know... That we will ever know the real story because he kind of is a master at telling everyone what they want to hear.
1: Were there times where he was up for, you know, more than 24 hours straight with grandiose ideas?
2: That I don't know. He did seem pretty – he was definitely very excited when we were moving. He was ecstatic. He was really charismatic, funny, charming, and had a way of getting everyone very excited about the move. Mm. And so those were like fun times. Like, oh, yeah, we're moving. You know, this is – And he would go around and introduce himself to all the new neighbors. And it was like, this is the place. This place is going to be the place, you know, kind of thing. And um, and then um, it seemed like a short – Shortly after, sometimes longer after we moved, and he realized it didn't fix whatever, then he would go into, uh, like, wasn't even there anymore. Like le- Like, Elvis left the building. He was a husk. He was so sad. He wouldn't talk to anyone. He was, like, just low.
1: Did you blame yourself? Or did you know he was going through something that had nothing to do with you?
2: I didn't know what it was because he wasn't diagnosed till way later, way after I'd moved out and was grown up. I didn't know what his deal was. I remember telling him, I think you need to go to therapy. And um, he also had extreme rages that were really scary. So I remember trying to reason with him um, and also trying to protect my mom and my brothers Um, and also fantasizing about leaving, moving out. I don't know that I thought it was my fault, but I also didn't really know it was a thing. I didn't know people Hmm. had depression. I didn't know what bipolar was. I didn't know what a rager was.
1: Was there a part of you that was attempting to fix or soften what was, was going on, or did you just kind of stand back and wait for the storm to blow over?
2: I definitely was always trying to fix it. It made me a a very good, like, little amateur counselor. I was like my mom's little amateur counselor, you know, and I would just give her all these pep talks and be like, you can do it, you can leave, you know, you can get out of here. And
1: How old were you when those started?
2: I don't remember what age, but I feel like I've always just kind of been her counselor. She would even call me her counselor. She still does.
1: Oh, man, that's so fucked up it's It's so fucked up when parents when parents reverse the parenting and they become the child it just robs that kid of their of their childhood that's such a weight to bear and they don't know and it's and it's kind of because i very very much relate i became my mom's sounding board at like seven about her marriage and I just remember feeling like I had to emotionally, you know, keep her spirits up when, when she would get down. And it, it, it's a bit of a, um, you feel like a big shot because an, a, an adult is confiding in you. So you feel kind of intelligent and important, but you don't realize that then you stuff what's going on with you and you, don't even know what it is that you're feeling. Or at least that was the case with me. What what was it like for you? If you, if you can kind of go back in time and re- remember the things you were that yeah. you had nobody to share with.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what it was. It was um, that sense of validation coming from feeling like I was helping my mom fix problems. And just feeling, like, powerless when I would hear her in her bedroom just crying for, like, hours. Just, she would just be crying and just feeling like, oh, I don't know how to fix this. And how do I fix, like, being, like, five years old, wanting to be able to fix, save, protect. And I would have um, nightmares about, you know, trying to save her from my dad like
1: from, from his anger or yeah or just, okay. like he'd be in a yeah.
2: rage attacking her and i would
1: physically attacking her or verbally
2: verbally not physically abusive but definitely like always the threat of it like right. throwing a vacuum cleaner you know throwing objects but you know def only only hit us once that i remember yeah. um but definitely like huge verbal abuser and just trying to save my mom and just feeling like, yeah, like I'm that little counselor. And it wasn't until really going into my 20s and joining Al-Anon that I started to go, oh, I need to unlearn this rule that 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 my value is tied up in fixing other people's problems or the illusion that I'm fixing people. And I started to realize I'm not even that good of a counselor. Like my, (laughs) my clients are not improving. They're not, they're not successfully leaving the marriage. And this is a job I need to resign from
1: oh my god what a lifesaver that yeah. must have been for you yeah did, did you feel a weight lifted when oh you?
2: huge and i started to take it back you know unconsciously in very you know various ways and now i just have to be so discerning um but you learn all these great tools there of yeah. like just saying i don't know or i hear you or, yes
1: is a complete sentence or no is a complete yeah. sentence
2: Yeah. And just being like, you don't have to be the superhero uh, to fix these things and to turn that superhero uh, power back on yourself and start like focusing on trying to save you. Like, that's the only person you have any real power over saving.
1: So what did you discover as you uh, pulled back your focus on other people and you started to get in touch with what was going on with you internally and externally?
2: I mean, what did I discover? Yeah. Uh, there's so much there.
1: <laughs> well, I got nothing but time.
2: <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I discovered that if I'm spending all this time focused on other people's stuff, why don't they do this? Because I felt like when I saw people, I could size them up and be like, oh, they just need this, this, and this, and then they'll be good to go. And I was constantly in this like renovation mode. Thinking I was helping them. And that is the classic Al Anon prototype, right? Like, and so, like, you know, when you stop doing that, you start to realize it's like, oh, when these people, it's not like, oh, when these people get better, then my life can go right. It stops being that and it starts being like, what other people are doing is none of my business. I can't help them. I can't save them. I can't they'll fix be them. ready when
1: they're ready, if ever, to to change, to look at themselves,
2: to go get help. That's right. And nobody can help them be ready. And by the way, a lot of people love their pain, and they want to keep it going. It makes them feel alive. They have their own reasons for that. Whatever it
1: feels familiar.
2: They want to hold on. They they're not they're not ready to let that go. And that I get to allow people to have the dignity of their own path. And when I, and like, all I can do in a day is look at myself. And like, when I start looking at myself, oh, there's a lot of stuff that could be fixed here, you know? Like, and so then, of course, you know, things start to get, um, you know that there's just like whenever I'm looking at someone else, could definitely be better doing something. It's time to you know look at me.
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of the uh, the old adage that uh, you know when you're pointing your finger at someone, you got three three fingers pointing back at you. Uh,
2: yeah, and nobody ever gets better from someone judging, assessing their situation, and assigning um, a, a get better medication for them. Right unless it's a professional.
1: And and the illusion is, the difficulty is sometimes we may be right what that person needs, but that's up to them. That's that's their own their own shit and I think when somebody does reach out for help and does start to do the work on themselves because they're doing it for themselves and not somebody else, the chances of, of real growth are are so much better. I, I know so many addicts who you know get into recovery to get the heat off, and that's a very very shaky uh, foundation to try to s- stay sober with.
2: Yeah, and you, I, I believe in you know the whole thing of attraction, not promotion. If yeah. you have a good life, people are going to ask you what you're doing. Right. You don't need to promote it. Right. You don't need to tell them <laughs> to join your thing. Just have a good life. So, Lead by example.
1: So what were are so I'm just going to take a wild guess. You might have even said it already that perfectionism is a is a thing uh, that you struggle with.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, it's so destructive and it really robs people of the joy of living and experiencing life and.
1: And being one of many you know, when we try to stand out with our perfection, you're separating yourself from, from other people.
2: Yeah. And nobody, I mean, I don't want to see some perfect right. thing, a person who's never struggled and who has always had it all together. That's mm-hmm. so boring. I don't relate. You know, I want to know what people have overcome and stuff. So, I mean, I am a and I was finding in my creativity, like my, my creative work, like I had all these ideas. I want to do all these projects and I would sit down to do it and and it wasn't already done and I would just give up. And like years would go by, you know, like mm-hmm. I did stand up once. It went great. I crushed it by fluke first time. And then the second time I did it, It wasn't a packed room. I didn't realize you had to do the same jokes again. And it didn't go well. And so I stopped doing it again for many years. And, you know, like sitting down to write a script, it's like, oh, well, I don't know how to write a script. Or like I remember in second grade, I wanted my teacher was like, she's, you know, very good writer. I'm going to help her write her book. And I was trying to write this book and I didn't know how to write a book. So I was totally disorganized. I had, you know, was In writing.
1: second grade, second you were trying grade, to write a book.
2: was trying to write a book.
1: Well, well, kids need to be published by third grade. So I understand the pressure.
2: <laughs> well, I was so disappointed that I couldn't finish this book. Because I didn't know how to write one. Wow. And I lived in that shame for a very long time. And that's the early. I remember the perfectionism even before that, though. I remember like being like four. And there was an Easter egg hunt that all my cousins were participating in. It looked so fun. All these beautiful colored eggs. The fun and joy of Easter. And I thought. I. And they were like, come on, join us. And I desperately wanted to join them and participate. But I was afraid I might not win. So I didn't let myself play.
1: Wow, wow.
2: And they were begging me, and I wanted to, and I could not let myself do it.
1: What do you think the fear was if you didn't win? Uh,
2: I think it was just um there I think we just walked on eggshells. My dad was uh, who who knew why he got mad when, and i was I internalized that and thought, I just need to be perfect like. So nobody gets mad, nobody has a, an emotion, and I'll be safe.
1: If, if you could get in a time machine and go back to yourself at any age and say something, what, what, what would you do?
2: Um, I guess I would say like, you know, in – Enjoy, enjoy your, your day, participate, let people know you. But like, even as I'm thinking that I'm thinking of that little kid who's so scared, who's just trying to survive.
1: Do you find remnants of?
2: Actually, I would tell her, ask for help. Tell someone what's going on in your family.
1: And who do you think, if anyone, you
2: would have reached out to? Well, that's the thing, because you're moving so much, you don't really have any roots. But I did try one time, and this is in the special, but I, in, in EMDR therapy, um, I uncovered a memory that um, when I was really young, I tape-recorded one of my dad's rages, tried to smuggle the tape into my grandma's house and leave it there uh, so that someone could know what was happening in our house and save us.
1: Wow. That's heartbreaking.
2: Yeah. What? And like nobody found the tape. And, and then, cause I remember next time I saw my grandma, I felt scared that she would find it and my dad would get in trouble. So I was like trying to be like, hey, you know, that tape I left here was a joke. And she was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I find a tape. So. This came up in therapy. I had I didn't remember it. But when it came up in therapy. So I'm doing EMD, I was doing EMDR before I graduated. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but when that came up it was it was such a a rich memory to process because think of that playing out in your life like the idea that nobody's getting the tape for me what it created was like a belief like nobody can can hear you nobody can help there's no protection. Like you go to all this effort to smuggle this tape out and sneak a tape and nobody's going to help. And so think of that playing out just even as being in entertainment. How many times, right? Because if we don't heal our trauma, we continue to recreate it. So it's recreating on an unconscious level. I, I can think of so many instances that I had like a giant show sold out Suddenly, the guy didn't forgot to put a you know a tape in the camera. <laughs> you know, like so many instances like this where the outside is just you're working so hard to have this career, but like inside you're kind of recreating this thing where your your voice and 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 also on the level of like, "Hey, your voice doesn't matter, you know, don't bother to speak up. Nobody's going to hear it. Like, like things it's like, like that.
1: that. Like that terrible dream where you scream and nothing comes out. Yeah. It's, I can't imagine what a, a, a feeling of powerlessness. Was there any rage in there? Or was it just kind of turned inward?
2: I think it was. That's a good question. I think it was turned inward. Because I remember um, doing step work with um, a sponsor who was saying like, Um, I was saying, oh, and I was so mad because I, you know, or I was so sad that I couldn't finish this book at age, you know, in second grade at age eight or whatever. And, uh, she was like, weren't you mad that you had to leave your school that you liked again? And I was like, oh, Oh, so when I, instead of feeling mad at my parents or, you know, I would turn it into perfectionism. Like, oh, I should, like a shame. Like I should have been able to write a book by now. Right.
1: Because then you have a sense of control and the world isn't filled with what seems like chaos and invisibility. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, because it's much easier. It's like emotional cutting to be like, um, you know, to to pull that old card, you know, card trick out and be like, oh, I suck. I can't finish a book. I can't finish a script, whatever, instead of feeling the feelings of like powerlessness.
1: So what are the ways that you escape into as an adult? to not feel uncomfortable feelings? Well. Or are there none?
2: Now I have all these healthy tools. Mm
1: -hmm. So so let's go back to before you developed the tools and give us some snapshots of what that looked like when you were at your sickest as an adult. And then let's have some snapshots from once you found some tools to, to cope.
2: Yeah, okay. I mean, it kind of like ran the gamut of um, avoidant behavior, um, avoidant compulsive behavior. I mean, definitely. Can, can,
1: can you be more specific if you're comfortable? Because yeah. I'm, I'm, it's a bit vague for me to understand exactly what you mean.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I was a smoker. I smoked like pack a day cigarettes Mm -hmm. i would eat like once a day um hardly ate um
1: was this a body image thing or just a lack of self-care thing
2: and i'm talking about like early 20s just moving to la i think it was just like it wasn't a body image thing it just was i didn't have any self-care so i would smoke, I would eat like once a day, I didn't know much about nutrition. Um, I drank, I was a drinker, periodic um, vodka drinker, Mm -hmm. and I was in a fantasy about people. I was like, a. I had like love and fantasy addict stuff with my relationships, and I was also, um, yeah, that's it. And was tied up with a very chaotic people, chaotic charismatic people who were in a crisis. Who yeah, you're, I you're, wanted to save.
1: Your emotional to-do list.
2: <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to get in there and save them. And that was preventing me from really showing up for my dreams and goals.
1: What did it look like when you were uh, engaged in in any of these things, if you can think of real-life examples?
2: Oh, it was very painful. I mean, I didn't have a sense of self. I didn't know my value. So... I was looking outside of myself, like, for validation from career, boyfriends, people. And in that time between an audition and hearing if you got the part, I could not stand that part. I, I couldn't stand it. I, and I would have to go to a bar and day drink
1: you might find out that you're not valid as a human being if they didn't choose you.
2: I could not stand it.
1: Yeah, it. Confirms all of your worst fears is you're not worthy of somebody saying you're special.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, and and, and ironically, or unironically, um, when I started to do to, to work on myself, like yeah, around self-acceptance and self-love and healing and stuff um and started to really like love myself and find self-acceptance and and inner validation i started to get a lot more acting work very easily because i also didn't need it because i knew that my value was inherent um not contingent on outside accomplishments or somebody else thinking I was okay, or any of that stuff
1: yeah there there's a uh, there are fumes to desperation that are so easy to smell uh, if they're not our own, but when they're our own, we don't realize how desperate our eyes can look and our body language and um, you know one of the, I think one of the most attractive things to the people who have power in this town is indifference.
2: Mm. Absolutely. Well, in every walk of life, and I think I had done okay on on a lot of bravado and self will. I had managed to book a lot of things from just like acting like I was felt great about myself. But when I really like dropped into like totally reparenting and being so kind to myself and knowing that no audition is more than my peace of mind no guy is worth more than my peace of mind that's when you know of course because I start to love myself all the things in your life are reflected back to you at higher quality you know because you're you can only attract in how you feel about yourself
1: uh, before you uh, got to that point Place. What did you? What was the approach to relationships, and what were the pitfalls for you? I imagine there were patterns that you repeated over and over.
2: Oh yeah. Um, I mean, just really unavailable
1: projects. <laughs> projects.
2: Renos. <laughs> Renos. Renovations, um, and yeah really, you know, um a lot of unavailable people, and then the people who are available, and amazing, of course, I would lose interest, I gotta go, you know, I'm just not feeling it. and um and then really, like, finally, like really looking at that, I got to see like, oh, actually, I'm the unavailable one because right. i'm I'm not a victim. I'm a perp, and I'm seeking the most unavailable people so that I can can rem, I can remain alone, and and I don't have to commit to anything, and I can be in my little fortress, and I don't have to have intimacy, real intimacy, right? And and that was kind of across the board in my life and my work as well. I wasn't being, you know, I think the best comedy is being truly authentic and. um and real, and I was, you know, not really able to have that intimacy in my work either.
1: Did you think that you had intimacy before you found real intimacy? Did you, th- did you think that you felt love when there was an unavailable guy that you were, you know, maybe pining after or trying to get to, to come back or give you more attention?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, when when I landed, I mean, first of all, my first boyfriend when I was 16 was amazing and we were together like a year and a half before I had to move to Kansas. Um, and by the way, I just want to say, like, I am in a place now like where I have total love and compassion for my parents and I absolutely know they did the best they could with their limited toolbox. Um, but... Yeah, I just definitely liked people, you know, that were – and my first boyfriend in LA, we went out a year and a half and got promised to – promised ring me to get engaged. And um, we definitely were very in love, but it was, um, you know, when that ended, I was absolutely devastated much longer, I think, than a person should be devastated for. I mean, these were the – the years of my life, you know, 23, 21 to 25, that I was in complete romantic obsession with this person. Um,
1: and what did that look like, romantic obsession?
2: Just couldn't stop ruminating, replaying it, what happened, you know, all those things. And he was, you know... Um, I mean that I, I would say that was a group a good relationship for like a y- a year and a half. Um, but yeah, again, not having that sense of value like I probably had it when I met him, and then probably just you know thought the value now was him
1: that he's going to give me the feelings I'm looking for that to so I can feel
2: instead of keeping that core center like right. I'm he's. Great, I'm great, and then you know and then we have this relationship that's great, and it's three separate entities instead of like merging into the codependent, okay, you now I'm gonna move in after two months and right. you know, all that stuff. All that fun stuff.
1: I, I heard somebody saying a support group uh wants uh become the person that you're looking for. Embody the things that you wanna find in another person. And uh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And it makes total total sense cuz then you it's it's so much easier to see your inherent self-worth. I mean, ideally we should be able to see that we have inherent worth whether we're growing or not.
2: Well, that's right. And um I mean, that's why I got this ring. This is my engagement ring to me. I'm getting married.
1: That's awesome. Married. <laughs> That's awesome.
2: <laughs> because it's a Are reminder. sure you don't want
1: to cut and run? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I do every day. But I'm I'm, you know, but I I love this like reminder to just like Yeah, that I'm in this, I'm building this relationship with myself and I'm, you know, never gonna leave me. And uh and so, you know, cultivating like feeling good every day, not contingent on any outside stuff. It's been really big.
1: So I imagine gratitude is uh, a necessary thing for you to get into your head.
2: For sure. I do gratitude. I am a gratitude junkie. I wake up. I do my little prayer meditation. I do my my bulletproof coffee. And then I'm like in the gratitude list and What's great about a gratitude list? I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but it really does change um, your perception and allows you to enjoy all that is here. And I love to take it back and and do you know my whole life. And I like to look at it. I call it a win inventory. Mm-hmm. I like to go through and look at all the wins and my and I and I listen to my intuition and I call that wind tuition. I go back Mm. through like my life and I'm looking at all the winds and how my intuition guided me perfectly in that time and how even the stuff like growing up with that family specifically, like there's so much gratitude there, you know, that I got a lot out of that. And like I, they gave me a lot, you know, even though it's not what I would have probably chosen. Um, it made me who I am.
1: It started the ball rolling on you having to find the tools that you developed just to survive, but now you get to break them out and use them in everyday life.
2: Yeah. And just, you know, it gives me so much empathy and compassion for, you know, many of my best friends now are, are bipolar and, it gives me so much empathy and compassion for people uh, i i see that my dad is totally separate from his mental illness he didn't choose that he didn't choose that rage it's probably familial trauma mm-hmm. you know but what's ex- i mean i wish he could have been happy i wish he could have gotten maybe the right meds or whatever gotten help and not dragged everyone through that but you know, I'm. do I wish my mom could have left earlier? Yes. But, you know, it gives me compassion. And also what's really exciting is it led me to get help because I was in so much pain. And by me helping myself, I get to help countless other people in my work and in, you know, and I wouldn't have any of that help to give if I didn't have to go through that.
1: That's the thing that's so hard to see when we're feeling hopeless and isolated and just nursing our pain in the in the corner of a room, not returning phone calls. We 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 can't even conceive of the fact that we might feel a sense of meaning and purpose once we get on our feet and begin to feel um, like we got some momentum going.
2: Well, you you've. It rarely looks like a gift at the time. Rarely, it looks like the worst thing ever.
1: It's hideous wrapping paper.
2: I don't know if yeah. I'm gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna make it through another day. I remember saying that every day. I don't know if I'm gonna make it through this day. I would tell people, and for a long time, that's why. Like when COVID hit and stuff, I completely get that everyone is totally freaked out. But for someone who lived in constant anxiety and fear the whole first part of my life, this is like nothing.
1: When COVID hit, I felt like the m- my outer world finally reflected my inner world. Because mm-hmm. when I would go grocery shopping, I would buy four tubes of toothpaste. I would, you know, when COVID hit, I had 20 rolls of toilet paper 20 rolls of paper towels because that doom part of my brain has been there forever
2: yeah yeah i mean and and it's like i you know i'll read you know the news and sometimes i you know i'll go there but like typically i'm like Typically, like that, the first part of my life felt like a war zone. And now it's like there is joy in each day, no matter what chaos is going on in the outside world. There is gratitude, there is peace, there are ways to get to feeling good. And sometimes, or just feeling it all, I think, is a success. Like yeah. just, just crying, just crying, being able to feel your feelings instead of, yeah. you know, stuff food in it or text some unavailable guy or smoke a pack of cigarettes, you know, just to have tools and to be able to feel the feelings. That's part of being in life. And, that, and I, I consider that a gift today because there's so long I, I couldn't be in life. That's
1: So true. So true. I mean, the, when you start to recover, the good news is, is you're going to f- be able to experience joy. And the bad news is, is you're going to be able to experience pain and sadness. But I think we also get to experience that those feelings are fleeting. And the more we sit through the pain, the more we're reminded that things, things do change. You know,
2: Things do change. And whatever you're going through can help someone else who is about to go through the same thing or is going to need someone who made it through. And so that's that's really amazing. I mean, I felt weird, you know, in my comedy special, I'm talking about the growing up with a bipolar parent and I felt so weird afterward, like, I don't know if I should say this, like it's that little girl trying to hide the tape again, right? But mm-hmm. it's like my friend, Maria Bamford, said, what if someone's in um, a home right now in that situation who would like to hear that someone else made it out. And that, that is like why that's added so much to, you know, my comedy is that like thinking of like, how can it help someone else? How can it serve, you know, a, a greater amount of people?
1: You know, you were talking about finding comfort, um, in the little things, once you started to have some tools and, and, and some gratitude. And for me, the idea of, you know, um, God or a, a higher power, it's hard to, I believe there's something out there. And at the very least, I know that when there's a shit storm, I can find a quiet place in there. I I can find a place where I can let it go and say, I'm not in charge of this. I'm just going to look for the beauty and the human connection in here. I don't know if the force or forces that run the universe want children to starve or Mm. all the other shit that's so horrifying to look at and think about. But I don't have to know whether or not they're in charge of that. I just have to know where I can seek comfort and peace when shitstorms hit because it works on a practical level. It works for me. Whether I'm kidding myself or not, it works for me and to me that's that spirituality.
2: Yeah. Um and you're so lucky to have that, you know, like I I I have it as well And, and that's the first thing you know that you'll learn in EMDR is you'll establish a safe space to go to when things are too much and you know for me I love beaches I'll go to a beach but I'm a nature person and I grew up my formative years in the mountains so just to have a safe space to go in your mind to retreat um and and the power of three deep breaths is like, you know, it's huge.
1: Let's, uh, well, first, is there anything else you'd like to share or talk about before we wrap up? I'm thinking to, to end this, it would be nice to, to just uh, fade out on a gratitude list. Each <laughs> of us sharing things we're grateful for.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, that's what I forgot to tell you. I have a movie that's coming out. You do? Yeah.
1: <laughs> What's it called?
2: It's called Love Weddings and Other Disasters. Awesome. Yeah. When,
1: when does it come out?
2: December 4th.
1: That's exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it stars Diane Keaton.
1: Wow. And Jeremy Irons. Oh, my God. And I
2: have like a, a really cool lead role. Oh, my God. That's... Fucking you. I, I totally forgot to tell you about that. But um, but Th- also. That
1: would have been the first thing I <laughs> casually inserted into the conversation and repeated throughout the conversation. Be like, you know, my friend Jeremy Irons always says.
2: <laughs> um, uh, so the, co- the comedy special is coming out October 20th. And it's but- called
1: Inappropriate. And people can find it, like, what, on...
2: Just go to MelindaHill.com. Okay. I mean, it's many places, but you can access all of them at okay. my site. But, yeah, and then the movie's coming out December 4th. So g- that's exciting. And, and, and
1: give me the name of it again.
2: It's called Love, Weddings, and Other Disasters.
1: And um, you can be followed on Instagram at MelindaHill?
2: At MelindaHill. At, sorry, at Real Melinda Hill.
1: Oh, fake Melinda Hill has such a shit Instagram account. (laughs) So glad you added real to it. Um, (laughs) Oh, I know. And I wanted to plug your podcast again, which is called Let's Process This. Uh, I am grateful for the love of my dog, Gracie.
2: I'm grateful for the love of your dog because what a sweetie. But I'm also grateful that We finally did this podcast. We've been talking about this for For like
1: two years, three years. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, I, and I'm so, that brings me to my next gratitude. I'm grateful for divine timing because I think that projects have timing, relationships have timing, and podcasts have timing.
1: Couldn't agree more. Uh, I am grateful for the use of my uh, arms and legs.
2: That's a good one. I am grateful that I got to see all of your awesome wooden furniture today that is so inspiring. Thank you. I can't even believe you made this. Thank you. Um, It's beautiful, and it inspired me to get clean, modern pieces and create that clean, modern vibe. And I also am grateful um, that you inspired me to get a vaporizer.
1: I am grateful for a well-written book that transports me to a place where I can experience something I would otherwise never experience.
2: I love books. Um, I am grateful that I'm writing a book. Um, And it makes me happy um, to have things to share. And I also love writing.
1: I am grateful for hockey the sport of hockey and all that it it embodies the speed of it the grace of it the physicality of it the uh, camaraderie and the combination i play defense which uh, to me is a really fun combination of geometry and psychology
2: i am grateful for long walks And that my friend Beth asked me to go to the beach today.
1: Which beach are you going to go to?
2: I guess Manhattan Beach, which I've never been to.
1: You've never been to Manhattan Beach?
2: No, I typically go to Malibu or Santa Monica.
1: I am grateful for uh, fall days when it's still sunny out, but the high temperature is around 65 or 70.
2: I am grateful that I got married with a giant... Engagement ring. (laughs) That's fake. It's fake.
1: (laughs) I'm grateful for a perfectly tuned guitar that uh, just sounds like a bell when you hit a note and it's so clear and it's just kind of chimey.
2: I am grateful that you just inspired me to take up guitar lessons, which I've been wanting to do since college. And I do have a guitar.
1: There are so many great resources on YouTube to learn guitar. I will go on there to learn songs that I can't figure out, and uh, so many great guitar teachers online. So many great ones. Yeah. Um, I'm
2: grateful for my cat. I'm grateful
1: for um, the listeners who have hung in. uh, This is probably going to sound incredibly self-deprecating, but it it truly. is what I think and feel a lot of times. Who have hung in through the so-so episodes of the podcast, and um,
2: which ones for so-so?
1: In in my mind, there are so-so moments in everything that I do. It's not my guests. It's it's like. The things that I do. Do I talk too much about myself? Was I too harsh on somebody? Did I overlook some truth because I was afraid of being disliked or coming across as, as critical? You know, on and on and on. And you know, as, as a comedian, that part of our brain that dissects and criticizes things so we can turn it into laughs is also there in our daily lives telling yes. us, Oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. You know,
2: I know, you know what I've been trying to do and I'm grateful for this is a day at a time. I'm trying to abstain from shame
1: so hard and
2: going, I should have shooting all over myself. I'm trying to <laughs> abstain from it should look like this. I should have done that. Um, I should have said more. I should have said less. And I'm trying to just trust that my intention it has been received and what I did was enough. It is so challenging.
1: So challenging. Uh, give me a gratitude.
2: I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I have my podcast because it is connecting me during COVID when mm-hmm. it's been so lonely and isolated. It has been a way to connect with others, um, and you know, I get to talk to you, and I get to talk to so many great people, and 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 it's also healing my perfectionism. Because it's not a perfect podcast. It, the sound is weird, it's on IG Live, it cuts out sporadically. And that's allowing me to do something imperfectly and to let it be about connection and not isolating. Well,
1: I think that's a great one to, to end on. Melinda, thanks. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. And, uh, me
2: too. people
1: want to know more about you, they can go to melindahill.com and uh, find it all there.
2: Thanks, Paul. Thank you.
1: What a sweetheart. And I mean that in the most condescending uh, way humanly possible. You know, what a what a nice conversation. It was nice to finally get to meet her. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what is When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.
0: With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the
1: wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, it is a great way to help out. You can also write a review on iTunes, give us a good rating. You can donate. Uh, If you go to our website, metalpod.com, there's a couple different ways. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter, which is hugely, hugely uh, helpful. You can make one-time PayPal donations. Or you can sit with your jaw open, staring out the window, wondering what might have been. I like to do that. That actually burns very few calories. But it does somehow just just feel right. This is from the love survey filled out by I Would Die for That Dog. And they write, The look my dog gives me when I'm spooning him. Like he doesn't have an ounce of judgment, just unconditional love. Oh my God, do I love that one. The look that Gracie gives me when we are cuddling, especially in the cold weather. She gets under the blankets and... Uh, And I love when her eyes start to roll into the back of her head. So great. Thank you for that one. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, filled out by uh, Tired. And she writes about her anxiety. Like the adrenaline rush you get when you're watching an end-of-the-world action movie and one of the main characters is about to die, except it's there when you're just trying to brush your fucking teeth. About her love addiction, I never feel lower than I do when I have feelings for someone, but I never feel higher than I do when I have feelings for someone. About her PMDD, it feels like a different person has come in and occupied my body for a week. About living with multiple mental disorders, it feels like I wonder which of these things is making me feel like crashing my car into a wall today and about having borderline personality disorder it feels like something is inherently wrong with who you are as a person i'm an alien living inside a human body and i'm just trying my best to be one of you guys oh, that's so it's so touching and, and and human i mean isn't that isn't that the the, the struggle is to, to feel a part of to deal with that void that we all have. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Planets Collide, and they write, I love at night wrapping myself around my wife and passing out, going to take a nap and the dogs cuddling between your legs and around your body. A cool breeze on a humid southern day or a salty breeze when you're on the coast. Oh, those are great. Oh, and I do love that. I do love that feeling when a dog curls up into that that fork in your legs when your legs are bent and you're sleeping it just feels i don't know there's something about having a weight uh, laying on top of you that that's at least for me it, it just feels so good sometimes when i'm having trouble getting uh up in the morning i'll ask my girlfriend to come in and uh and just lay on top of me. And something about that, it just it just feels good. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Sugar Pill. And she writes about her depression. My chronic depression is like a bloodhound and that no distance is too great for him to find me. Ugh, so good. About her anxiety, I hold my breath when using the crosswalk. About her alcoholism, I'm living proof that you can kick one bad habit by picking up another. About her love addiction, I say I love you to my partner before rolling over and fantasizing about my therapist. About PTSD, I now know that turtlenecks are out because that was my abuser's favorite place to kiss. Oh man, that's rough. About experiencing sexual bias, I swear to God, I will marry the first guy that doesn't interrupt me. About experiencing racial or cultural bias, what are you is a common icebreaker when people meet me. Oh, that's got to be so fucking draining. About living with an abuser, my caretaker was physically, verbally, emotionally, and sexually abusive during my childhood. Living with them was like building a house with a different blueprint each day. About her anger issues. I resent the toddler who frowned at me from his shopping cart seat as I left the liquor store in Florida on the afternoon of December 23rd, 2014. Oh yeah, holding, holding on to a nice resentment. About her perfectionism. Remember when I tried to keep up with email during the 5150? About her body dysmorphia. I see myself via broadcast delay. I think I look good years after the picture was taken. Oh, that's so true that's so fucked up that we can only appreciate how we looked until a decade has passed and about experiencing the pandemic like early sobriety I'm once again trying to parse out the difference between isolation and solitude Snapshot from her life. The year before I stopped drinking, I went to the doctor for what I suspected was a UTI. The doctor mentioned that my urine sample had a high level of alcohol. I thought it was absurd for the doctor to mention that. Sure, it was 9 a.m., and sure, I took my coffee with whiskey, but how dare this fucking doctor insinuate that I had a problem. I was so sure it wasn't a problem that I automatically countered that doctor's claim with a lie. That alcohol must have been from a party I went to the night before. To this day, I'm amazed at how beguiling denial can be. So true, man. Oh, the wall, the wall of denial keeping us stuck. And it's so hard to see it when we're stuck behind it because it just seems like the truth. This is a happy moment filled out by Ork Liker, and she writes, I'm 24 now, and my mom died from her ALS about 18 months ago. Things had always been rough in our relationship, and sometimes it's hard for me to remember the good parts. Last week, I was looking through my closet for a sweatshirt to wear to work, and I noticed one I didn't recognize. At the bottom of the pile of folded sweatshirts was an intensely green, in that vintage 80s way, sweatshirt that had been my mom's from when she was in a sorority. I'm post-college, but sororities are something I despise as an institution. Maybe I'm bitter because I've never been popular or pretty or social enough uh, for them, but shut up. No, I'm not. Anyway, I put it on and felt so comforted. This sweatshirt was the kind of thing she would have worn when I was younger and we were closer. I feel safe wearing it, so much so that after watching a scary movie, I lay it over myself like a blanket when I went to bed for comfort. I was always intimidated by sorority sweatshirts, and now I can wear it like armor to the grocery store on days I feel small. Plus, the nerdy side of me pretends the weird letters are ancient tunes of protection from evil. Things were really rough between us for a long time, including her death, but when I was little, I sometimes thought the whole world of her, and I think finding this old sweatshirt has helped me remember that. I wish I could have fixed things with her, but I try hard to remember that there were good times too. Oh, thank you for that. That is, that is like the definition of bittersweet. I remember after my dad died in 2006, going into his bedroom and, uh, and just going through his clothes and, and smelling his clothes. This is a struggle in the sentence survey filled out by Bad Wolf and uh, she writes about her depression. Bipolar, it's like a kite's blowing me away and an anchor is pulling me down. Ever since my diagnosis, I feel like I'm struggling to find my true identity. What is the true me? Somewhere between this mania and depression lies my true form that my therapist wants me to find. But what is that? That's deep. That is deep. And I think so universal for those of us that, struggle with, uh, 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 metal disorder. Um, I, I have found that it's the pursuit of finding our authentic authenticity that is the thing to focus on more than, you know, saying, am I there yet? Have I found out who, who I am? I, I don't think we ever fully find who we are. I think it's, you know, that, that thing they say in recovery about peeling the layers of the onion and and i think trying to be satisfied with the the path along the way is the is the thing to focus on this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself instability man he writes i've Spent the last four years seeking an understanding of my mental illness. I bounced between 11 psychiatrists, feeling like a failed experiment. Two months ago, I met my current provider, Dr. K. Dr. K spent the last few months helping me express my problems in ways I never thought possible. He listened to me, laughed and cried with me, but most importantly, understood me. I can now happily say that for the first time in a decade, I am H-A-P-P-Y happy. Don't settle for the provider you can get. Look for the one you deserve. Wow. Kudos to you, man. Kudos to you. Any comments to make the podcast better? I want to expressly thank you for your dedication to this podcast. When I couldn't express how I felt when I was struggling, you and your guests helped me find the words. I hope you don't mind. I've made you my patron saint, Paul. I wish you well. I hope that you have fashioned a little voodoo doll of me that you wear around your neck. And if that seems like too much of a hassle, I will just come and hang out with you. And people say, who's that dude? You can say, he's my patron saint. And I'll go, what's up? Tell him I'm a, I'm a modern patron saint. Maybe flash a gang symbol or two. Just keep him off balance. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Cupcake that's interesting uh, calls, she calls herself odd cupcake um, and that is how people say I look from the side about her depression suicidal everyone at my funeral will be strangers that don't know me and it's all my th- fault I don't think you're being hard enough on yourself I think, I think you needed uh, a third or fourth thing in there to pummel yourself about her compulsive eating at least I didn't eat from the trash can about living with an abuser, living with my ex, being treated like I deserve is better than being alone. Isn't it amazing that the things, when we're afraid of being alone, the things that we will accept, the crumbs that we will accept, mind mind bottling. Mind bottling? (laughs) Yes. They take a brain, they squeeze the juice out of it, and they put it into a bottle, but they don't cap it. They don't cap it. Uh any comments to make the podcast better? Maybe more cringy jokes? No, nah, I think I think we are at our cringy joke limit. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Give Me Peace. And she writes, I have acne and I use a retinoid cream on my face that makes my skin dry and fragile. Today I felt crippled by my loneliness and was shocked that I was able to cry for once. My antidepressants don't like me crying one bit, so crying for once was a miracle. As the tears rolled down my face, my skin began to burn. Oh, thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Cosmic Insignificance. And they write, I love my dog. I love the way she rests her head on my shoulder in the car when she's still sleepy in the morning. I love how, during our walks, when she gets to see the neighbor dog down the street, they bump noses, her tail flails like a helicopter blade, and she returns to me, bouncing and ready to sprint anywhere out of pure joy. I love it when she burrows under the couch cushions and erupts from them after a silent pause like a great white great white attacking a seal, when she's feeling playful and tosses a ball to herself, chasing it like she can't catch it, only to do its... Do it, so then flick it away again. I read dogs have evolved to read the human face for emotion, so I make it a point to smile at her every time she looks at me, even if it's fake. Even when I feel overcome with sadness, knowing that our time together is rapidly coming to an end. The arthritis is taking a toll, the tumors spreading, her ep- epilepsy constantly on my mind that could at any moment take her from me. I still look at her and smile because although it's destroying me, she needs to feel like everything is going to be okay. That I'm going to protect her and spend every last penny penny I have on her comfort and treatment. That despite the living hell that life is, I would always choose her and love her forever. She's my favorite anything on this planet in a universe that doesn't care if any of us exist. But I care that she exists and she cares about me that's got to come for something, right? And that makes me feel a little less dead inside and a little more like life is worth living, even if I know it's only for a little while longer. Wow, there's some heaviness there in, uh, in that, that love. But man, that's a... I relate to so much of that. I was so afraid to get another dog after my last two dogs died because it was so painful and I didn't want to feel that pain again. And then the universe put Gracie in my life, and uh, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Heather about her depression. She writes, I once heard depression described as feeling homesick for a place that doesn't exist. I burst into tears because I've never related to anything more, and I finally had a way to explain how I feel. That is such, such a, an apt description. I think of depression, I think of addiction, about her anxiety, in the throes of anxiety I struggle to focus, feel pins and needles in my hand and feet, sometimes feel very physically weak and constantly on the verge of tears and panic attack in the moment, about her alcoholism or drug addiction, I smoke so much weed that it sometimes doesn't make me feel high anymore. I heard somebody say one time, bottoming out on weed is like getting kicked to death by a rabbit. And I have experienced that. That is, it is such a slow decline into just fogginess and complacency. About our anger issues, I'm quick to respond or snap out of frustration that rises in me quickly, mostly mostly around the people that I love and feel most comfortable with, and the people that I don't even really care for get the fake patient version of me. I hate the feeling the second you snap and instantly regret it. Thank you for those. And um, you know, it might be, might be worth checking out, giving up the weed for a little while, and Feeling your feelings, so so you can you can deal with them. I mean, one of the things you know, not that I'm against recreational drug use, but I think when it becomes the sole coping mechanism for us, and we're doing it more than we want to, uh, it's I think it's it's worth trying another route. This is from the love survey filled out by Josh. He writes, I love raising my son in an emotionally healthy way. Coming from my childhood in which I was emotionally neglected and sexually abused, I feel like I'm really breaking that negative cycle. I've been through years of therapy now and it's helped me so much with raising him. I can tell because of how comfortable and open he is with expressing himself. He's seven now. He has the confidence that I only wished I had when I was his age. I'm fortunate with how much time we spend together. Our favorite activity is skateboarding. I'm having fun getting back into it. I used to be pretty good, and he's getting really good at it too with me teaching him. Man, do I love that. I just love seeing parents having fun with their kids and really, really being present. So awesome. And then finally, this is uh, from the Love Survey. Uh, This is filled out by, uh, that wasn't trauma, that was my childhood. And they write, "Uh, I love the sound of my coworkers in the morning. I'm the administrative assistant for a small corporate office, so I sit between the two wings of the one-floor building. Being surrounded by the sound of friendship, laughter, and frivolity so early in the day makes even a bad morning so much better running down a slight hill, not steep enough that you're tripping over your own feet, but just enough of a decline that you have little moments of extended weightlessness between strides. (sighs) That's such a great one. Listening to this podcast, audiobooks, or videos, and hearing someone say exactly what you've been trying to put into words your entire life, it's like you can breathe again, even if just for a moment, because someone has lifted the fog and shown you a glimpse of the path you've been desperately looking for. That feeling of an immense validation is more healing than I ever imagined. The first line mowed in an overgrown lawn, oh, that is a great one. The first sip of a drink you've been waiting for all day long. And for me, that's a good iced coffee. The smell of, Gracie, the smell of clean sheets. And the last one, a text from someone in your life that's totally out of the blue, asking how you are and letting you know that they're thinking about you. Love those. God, those are so good. So good. My friend Jonathan called me the other day and he said, I'm just calling because I'm Thinking about you, and I wanted to tell you that I love you. Not not only do I love that, but Jonathan used to be a hardcore gang member who, you know, was truly a menace to society. And he turned his life around. And you know, we were talking about just how much he's changed. And he he said, you know, it, it wasn't until I. Got sober and started dealing with what I was really feeling. Then I realized I'm really sensitive. And fuck, that just made my day. Well, if if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I I just want to remind you that you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is weird bizarrely busy. beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.